Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, the scripture reads, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I, that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If you have been with us for any length of time over the last little while, you'll know that we have just completed a four-part series on the importance of holding fast to the word of life, found in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We spent some time looking at that. You remember it came out of one Greek word. We spent four weeks on one Greek word, that word epecho which uh, had a whole different group of meanings to it. And we spent a long time asking the question, what am I to do with the gospel? And I hope that was an encouraging series. It certainly was for me. But this morning I'm particularly excited because we come to a new portion of scripture, a new study, if you will. And over the next few weeks, we will be looking at three fascinating characters in the scripture. It's a character study time. And I love character studies. Uh, because we get the privilege of peering behind the curtain of all the activity to observe the heart and passion of the individual. Uh, we appreciate the faithful work and, and effort on the part of men and women of God who have exercised themselves in the cause of Christ. But we become even more thankful for their work and service when we get the opportunity to gaze into their true character who it is behind the curtain, who it is in the closet, so to speak. Uh, In other words, we want to ask the question, what makes these saints tick? What is it that made the Apostle Paul who he is? What is it that made Timothy 
who he was and what is it that makes Epaphroditus who he was. So three characters and I just told you who they are. The Apostle Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Those three and that will be the conclusion of chapter 2 in about a year's time. Not really. The Apostle Paul we see in verses 16 and 17 and then verses 19 through to verse 24 we are confronted with Timothy who is called Paul's co-labourer and son in the faith and then the third character we find from verse 25 through to the end of the chapter who is Epaphroditus who is called by the way and I'm eager to look at this particular person he is called in that text a brother, a fellow worker fellow soldier, your messenger and minister. That gives us a bit of an insight already into who this man Epaphroditus must have been. But each of these studies, I'm convinced, will give us great insights into the character of these faithful saints and set an example for us to follow. And so this morning, I want to begin with the Apostle Paul. I've entitled the message this way. Paul, a man with eternity in view. In brackets, part one. Because there's going to be two parts. There was going to be just one, but I knew it would go too long today. Paul, a man with eternity in view, part one. Heavenly Father, as always, I come before you, uh, before I dare try to explain or preach from your word, I ask that you would strengthen and help, give guidance. Uh, May I be led by the Spirit of God, Lord, if there is anything at all within me that is not uh, in total submission to you, I pray you to reveal it. Uh, to me, even now, that, Lord, I would put that right before you, that there would be nothing that would be a hindrance uh, before your people, understanding and taking a hold of that which is to be shared with them. I pray, Lord, that the the faithful time spent in the study would be uh, blessed in that it would be simple and helpful for us as your people, as sheep of your pasture, to grow and to change and to be ever more conformed to your image. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have this man, Paul. Now, we probably think we have a little bit of an understanding of who Paul is, but for the first part of this message, for the first few moments, I want to just summarise without turning to all the passages. Uh, I've spent the time studying it, and you can either trust that or you can write down the references and look at it when you get home. Either's fine or take a copy of the message. I want to give you a summary of who this man Paul, originally Saul, is and was. Uh, Very quickly, who was this man who's writing this epistle and the one who suddenly turns from giving commands to start saying I? Have a look at the text. He suddenly now holding fast to the word of life, verse 16, so in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain, even if I am to be poured, I am glad. And this is the first time in the whole chapter that he's referred to himself in that first person. Why suddenly? Why suddenly? We want to look at that. But before we do that, we have to know, well, who is Paul? Let me give you a summary here. Paul, or Saul, his Hebrew name, was born around 6 AD in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia. Okay, Paul and Saul, same person. Okay, so if I interchange them, that's who we're talking about. Born around about 6 AD, somewhere around there. He is born of pure Jewish descent of the tribe of Benjamin. Acts 22 verse 3 says... That's very important to note. Paul's father was a Pharisee. The Bible tells us in Acts 23 and verse 6. And he inherited his rights as a Roman citizen from his father. Acts 22 verse 28 says. That becomes an important piece of information when we get to the book of Acts at the end when he says, are you about to uh, scourge a Roman citizen? 
And that's how he gets to appeal to Caesar. He is a Roman citizen. Very important. And the Lord did that. By the way, just as a side note, interesting to note, isn't it? He was born into this, but the Lord used that. Don't for a moment think that something that you have been born into or that you have acquired from family or something cannot be used in the service of God. God used this in a great way, his citizenship. Interestingly, there is no mention at all of his mother in the scripture. He had one, clearly. And uh, clearly uh, she was involved because uh, obviously he uh, he's born of a Pharisee. Uh, but we don't know anything about his upbringing as it relates to his mum. We see uh, Paul had at least one sibling. He had a sister because his sister's son aided him during the time at Rome in Acts 23 and verse 16. And it would appear, we don't know for sure, but it would appear that at least his nephew was saved. Whether or not his sister was is another question we don't know for sure. But the way in which he was aided, nobody would aid the Apostle Paul if they were not with him because he was an outcast and he was no-go zone. So he had a sister and his sister had a son. But Paul was the ideal Jew. We read in Philippians chapter 3, we'll get there sometime, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, a Hebrew of the Hebrews zealously opposed to any that denied or sidestepped the law. He upheld the law ferociously. You want to mess with the law of God, I am going to stand in the way, Paul would say. And he was considered blameless. Philippians chapter 3 tells us that. He was a tent maker by trade. We're told that in Acts chapter 18 verse 3. Now some of us might think of tent maker as a lowly task. Uh, Don't misunderstand that. That was quite a wealthy practice to be in because everybody was using tents. Now today we'd say, well, who wants to be a tent maker? I don't want to be a tent maker. But if you think of a builder of the day, that's what the Apostle Paul did. The average person would buy tents and there were lots of them. So being a tent maker was considered a good thing to be doing. So understand that that's what the Apostle Paul did. And he used that right throughout his ministry life, by the way, I might add. So don't think that the skills you have received, even at the hands of the world, being an apprentice or something else, God cannot use throughout your ministry. He certainly can. Allegedly, and we don't know this because the scripture doesn't say it, but I suggest that this is true. At the age of 13 or 14, the Apostle Paul or Saul went to Jerusalem to be educated in the Hebrew law. And we know that because it tells us in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3 that he became a student of Gamaliel, a very well-distinguished teacher of the law. And most commentators, and I would concur with this, suggest that the Apostle Paul at the age of manhood, which is 13 in the year of the Jew, okay, in the life of the Jew, would go down if he was going to be serious about the law and he would go to Jerusalem where all the, the great teachers are and that is where he would gain his education. At some stage during that time of education, Gamaliel must have caught his eye or he was such a great student that he was uh, ushered in and promoted to be in the category or classroom of Gamaliel who was considered a great teacher. So the Apostle Paul or Saul at this time is considered quite a unique young man to be sitting at the feet of this great, great teacher. At a tender age, the Bible says in Acts 26, Paul was known of all the Jews. That's what it says. He was known of all the Jews for being the straightest sects of their religion. Acts 26 verses 4 to 5 say. You know what it means? He was a celebrity in his day. 
Everybody knew Saul of Tarsus. Oh yeah, Saul, he's the son of the Pharisee, isn't he? He's the one who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Yeah, we know Saul. He's the one who's just so vehement for the, for the law of God. He is, he, he's the man. This is the man in this day. In fact, it's interesting when you trace in scripture, it is very likely, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it is very likely that Saul was in attendance at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Very likely. If this is who Saul is, and he is this kind of person, I am—I would almost suggest to you categorically that he was there casting doubts and spurious thoughts into the minds of those who were there on the day when they put the Lord Jesus before Pontius Pilate. I would suggest to you that he was there. I would suggest to you that he may have been one of those who shook their head in Matthew 27 and various other places in Scripture and uh, and were mocking the Lord Jesus on the cross saying, well, if you're so great, come off the cross. I don't know that for sure, but based on his life and his role in Jerusalem at that time, it is very likely that he was there. We do know that his first mention is in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, where he approved of Stephen's martyrdom. They laid his clothes at the feet of a man called Saul, who was probably in his late 20s at the time, and was considered a great man of the law. Very likely, three years earlier, he was involved with the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. Very likely. He was probably in attendance at the Sanhedrin Council in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the Apostles stood before them. He may have even been a member at that stage. There's some question about his age. But we do know this, that Saul was vehemently opposed to this new sect called Christianity. So opposed. He was responsible for beating Christians, Acts chapter 26 verses 10 to 11 says, dragging them off to prison and even putting them to death. How's that for a testimony before Christ? Not too many of us. Some of us have have done some outrageous things in our lives, but there's not too many in this room who have actually dragged Christians off to prison and murdered women and even possibly children and their husbands in the cause of getting rid of Christianity. What an incredible situation. But then one day, you'll recall, in Acts chapter 9, he and his group of people are heading to Damascus because there's a group of Christians down in Damascus who they're going to do the same thing to. And on the way, it's the last time he'll ever do it. Because on the way, a great light from heaven shines and the Lord Jesus himself speaks to the, this man Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting that he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? The Lord Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because what, the, what Saul was actually doing, even though he was killing and dragging people off to prison and so on, he was bringing about disrepute to the name and cause of Christ and therefore Christ takes that seriously. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks, the Bible says. Paul had already had his conscience being pricked and he says, why do you keep on kicking the goads? Why do you keep on doing that? And at that moment, we see from other passages in Acts, Paul, Saul, is confronted by the risen Christ who he has been opposing and is converted. And is converted. A glorious occurrence around about AD 34. Not long after that, Paul spends three years in Arabia with the Lord. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we forget that the Apostle Paul or Saul at this time, who's just been converted and uh He's already had his eyes opened by Ananias, we know that, but shortly after this, he goes and spends three years in Arabia 
getting revelation from Jesus Christ himself, which provided for him what he needed for the rest of his ministry. This was the gospel of Jesus Christ that we read in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. This is what he got from the Lord Jesus three years in Arabia, personally taught by him, Galatians chapter 1 tells us. After that three years, he goes to the church at Antioch with Barnabas. Everybody's afraid of this man Saul, and wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be afraid if, if Saul came in here, having known what he did to perhaps your brothers, your sisters, your relatives? But Barnabas says, no, no, this guy is truly saved. You come with me. They go up to Antioch, and there they begin to minister together in an eldership role for a whole year, Acts chapter 11 tells us. And they're, they're being blessed, and the church is growing, and there's great teaching happening. And then one day, as they are worshipping, by the way, The Holy Spirit says to the leadership and the church there, set apart from me Paul and Barnabas for the ministry I have called them to. I always use this verse when I'm talking particularly to young people who say, I believe God's called me. My first question is, well, that's great. Were you worshipping? Were you already in the place of worship? Because the scripture makes it clear that it's when we worship and we are in correct connection with God, that's when he begins to show us the next step. And so here we have Paul and Barnabas and they are sent out by the church at Antioch on their first missionary journey. They take with them John Mark, this man, um, who is profitable and they go to a a number of different places. Uh, They they end up going to Seleucia and Cyprus and Salamis and Paphos and all these other words that I'm not even going to try and pronounce for you. But this is where they went all over the place, teaching and preaching the word of God. And it was Paul's custom. He'd go into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he would teach them uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ and people would be saved and he'd get thrown out and he'd get beaten and all sorts of things would happen. Finally, after this first missionary journey, they come back to the church at Antioch and they report. And then Paul and Barnabas believed God would have them go on a second, second missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas get ready to go and Barnabas says, all right, we're going to take John Mark with us this other man who's a disciple. But John Mark on that first missionary journey had departed from them and gone and done his own thing. And Paul says, we're not taking John Mark with us. I don't want to go with John Mark. And so there's a great contention between Paul and Barnabas. And so Barnabas sets out with John Mark in a different direction and Paul takes a man who we do not know until this time called Silas to go with him on this second missionary journey. And they go all over the place. They go to Derby and Lystra and Troas and Neapolis, Philippi. We're in the book of Philippians. Okay, This is where these guys went. Philippi, uh, they went to Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth and so on and so on and then Jerusalem. And then the third missionary journey, just a little while later, AD 53, Paul goes and visits a whole bunch of other places. Now you're all probably thinking, we don't really need to know all these locations. I don't even know where they are. Just hold on. So on this third missionary journey, around about 53 AD, Paul goes to Galatia and Phrygia and Ephesus and Macedonia, Greece, Troas, Miletus and so on. And then he comes back to Jerusalem where he is arrested. Okay, goes to Jerusalem against the will of others. He says, I must go to Jerusalem. This is where the Spirit wants me to go. Knowing full well he will be arrested. He's in Jerusalem and he is arrested. And so he stands before the Sanhedrin. Now, just pause a moment. Who's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin are the people who he was with just a little while earlier. And probably some of the same people he would have known back there on that board, he stands before. He then goes before Felix, the governor. 
And then shortly later, Festus. And then King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is the one who says, after hearing all of these things, you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian, Agrippa says. And then finally, he appeals to Caesar. He says, I'm a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And that in turn, when he did that, means that Paul was then to be transported by vessel on the sea to Rome. But on the way, there's a shipwreck. And no lives are lost, the Bible tells us. He finally reaches Rome, having appealed to Caesar, where he remains under house arrest for two whole years in about 61 AD. You've heard me say this many times. He's connected with a chain to a Roman guard, an imperial officer at that time with all the Roman garb on for two whole years. But he's in his own hired house, so he's able to write. He can have visitors come. And this is where we find ourselves right here in our text. Here he is writing to the church at Philippi during these two years under house arrest and it's at this point, 30 years after his conversion and service, that he writes to the church of Philippi what is before us and this is what he says, holding fast to the word of life. Whoa, we know what you've been doing for 30 years. You're telling us to hold fast to the word of life. I hope the background there helps you get into your mind what comes next. Because we might have to ask the question, how on earth did this man Paul keep going? After all he'd been through, he'd already been stoned and scourged and shipwrecked. His body was an absolute mess physically. Some believe he died back there in Lystra when he was stoned. And the Lord raised him again from the dead. I mean, this is an incredible thing. We don't even understand this because we don't see this kind of persecution. Here is this man and he says now, hold fast. And we say, how? How on earth can I hold fast like you have? You've held fast to this gospel. What is it that motivates you, Paul? That is what we want to look at. Because Paul was a man who had eternity in view. He had a vision of eternity. He was consumed with a passion to bring glory to his Saviour and his entire ministry can be summed up in the previous chapter, I believe. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says this, It is my eager expectation, Paul says, again, chained to a Roman guard. I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ. And if I die, I gain. You want to sum up the Apostle Paul's life? That's it. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Whether you leave me here and I rot in this dungeon, whether you leave me here chained to this soldier for the rest of my life, it's for Christ. Whether you destroy me and behead me like you will in just a few years from now, it doesn't matter because it's it's all for him anyway. That's Paul's motivation. I could just about finish the message there because that's, that's what it is. But let's just look at the text here. We've already looked at what it means to hold fast the word of life. But this is what he says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Now, be careful, Bible students here this morning, be very careful, every one of us, that you do not read into the text here something that is not there. When the Apostle Paul speaks of pride... We may look at that and say, oh, 
What a proud man. Okay, I'm going to explain how that works. Okay, so, so don't read this incorrectly. But first of all, let's look at the day of Christ. He says here that in the day of Christ, Paul uses this term, and it is a term, day of Christ, as his primary reason for faithful service. So that in the day of Christ, holding fast because the day of Christ is coming. Now, first and foremost, we need to understand the day of Christ is not the same thing as the day of the Lord in the scripture. Okay, there are two terms, day of Christ, day of the Lord. Now, they are closely connected, but they refer to different things. Let me explain that. The day of the Lord, not in our text, refers to a judgment of the unbeliever. The day of the Lord is that which will come as a thief in the night, First Thessalonians says. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Joel, the whole theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And it is not talking about the same day that the Apostle Paul is talking about. In fact, Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. That's the day of the Lord. Judgment on an unregenerate people. The day of Christ, however, refers to that time in the future where the Christian will be caught up in the air at the appearance of Jesus Christ. This is the final chapter of salvation referred to as glorification. You recall we have justification, we are declared righteous, converted. That's what happened to Paul on that day. Sanctification is the process that begins at the same time and goes right throughout our physical life and we're being changed into the image of Christ and then one day, in an instant, glorification. I'm changed ultimately and permanently. No longer there is sin. No longer there is this body of flesh. It's all changed and I see him as he is. This is the day of Christ. Glorification. And that's the day where I will stand before my Saviour at the Bema Seat Judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. At that time, we will stand before him and we will give an account. This is not for salvation. This is not about whether we get to heaven or not. This is about the judgment of our works. And there will be rewards and there will be a loss of rewards. Second Corinthians chapter 1. This is the place where the Bible says, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is when our life's work is really tested by fire, wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. This is the day that we eagerly await if we are serving the Lord as we ought to. This is the day we long for because at this time in our life we might be struggling and there might be false accusations in our life and there might be all manner of problems going on and yet we look forward to the day of Christ when finally his approval and his affirmation and his stamp of approval in our life is given and we say, hallelujah, it was worth it. That's the day. This is the day that the Apostle Paul is alluding to. He says, oh, yes, I'm chained to a Roman soldier. I'm, I'm not where I want to be necessarily. This isn't the desire of my heart. But I have learned in whatsoever state to be content because of this thing that one day I will stand before the righteous judge. And he knows my heart. He knows my motive. He knows why I am here, though the rest of the world may not. This day of Christ, the Apostle Paul refers to it a lot. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 
He says, it is he who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, we know this verse, a great verse. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then our text before us, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Paul operated with an eternal perspective. He did not look to the next day or the next week or the next month. He looked to a day which is the day of Christ. Christian, what are you looking to? What are you looking to? What is it that you are living today for? We'll come back to some of that in a moment. But he also says the day of Christ, that I may be proud. Now, we would immediately look at that and say, hang on, pride? That's, that's, that's what caused the devil to fall. Uh, pride, isn't, this, is, this, is, this is wicked. What's Paul saying? What do you mean he can be proud? Just hold on before you jump out of your seats and take me off the pulpit here. Let me explain what this pride really means. Paul is in no way seeking his own glory. Paul is in no way expressing sinful pride here. This word pride, or in the King James says the word rejoice, okay, is a neutral word. Now, I've told you about these neutral words in Greek before. Uh, it's, it's a word that is neutral in its form, which simply means the context or the motive denotes whether it is positive or negative. Okay, The word lust is like that. Lust in itself is not an evil word. We have turned it evil, but you can have a desire for good or you can have a desire for evil. That's the word lust. This word pride is the same thing. Neutral, positive or negative, depending on how it is going to be used in the context. Okay. So, for example, Paul uses this exact same word talking about the church at Corinth. And you'll know that's never a positive word usually when it's to do with the church at Corinth. I've got lots of problems. First Corinthians 5, 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Negative. Same word. He says in First Corinthians 9, 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Negative use of the word. I have no reason to boast and brag about this gospel in myself because it's not about me. Negative. But he also uses the word positively. Galatians 6 and verse 4, he says this, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself. So hang on, how is that positive? It's positive because he's not looking around at others and and trying to compare, but looking at his own spiritual life and seeing God's work within him and able to rejoice in what God is doing as opposed to comparison in the context. And then in Philippians 1.26, he says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory... In Christ Jesus. Because of my life, the Apostle Paul says in that text in Philippians 1.26, because of my life, you have ample cause to glory in God. That's not a bad boasting. That's a great boasting. Any boasting that relates to God is a wonderful and a good boasting. That is how the Apostle Paul is using this word. He is not operating with sinful pride. He is simply saying that I may be proud, I may rejoice in God's work that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. If you Philippians will hold on and hold in and hold out and hold up this gospel, I will rejoice in that day of Christ because what I have done has not been running in vain or labouring in vain, it's been the real 
deal. It's been fruit to your account and mine. You know what? Every spiritual leader in the church of Jesus Christ who is serious understands this. As your pastor, Terry, as one of your pastors also, we come to appreciate the fact that Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are watching over your souls as those who will give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Um, your obedience to us as leaders, and I'm not pointing the finger to make this a great big thing where you must obey, that's not the point, but your obedience as we teach and preach the word, not by what we have to say, but what the word says, you know what that does one day? When we stand before Jesus Christ on the day of Christ, we give an account with joy and not with grief because you as a congregation have obeyed the word of God. Paul understood this, Peter understood this, John understood this because they were the leaders given to those churches at that time. Every leader, and that's why I always go hard for the leaders of the churches, because as leaders, we give an account. We give an account for how I faithfully teach and preach the word, but also what you do with it. What you do with it. One day I want to give an account to the Lord with joy. I want to say, Lord, they, they, they followed your word. They were challenged by it and they obeyed it and they were, they were humble in it. I want to do that. And I appreciate what Paul is saying here. Because he's saying, I want to be able to rejoice when Jesus Christ comes. That I didn't just work all these years for nothing. But that there is fruit. Notice what he says next. He says, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. I want to spend a few moments on this before I uh, bring us to the landing strip this morning. There are two metaphors given here at the end of this verse. Running in vain and labouring in vain. The first metaphor is the persevering runner In a marathon. That's the picture. The Greek knew it because of the words here. They knew what was being referred to. The second picture is the hard-working labourer or farmer. Now, we have the difficulty in our English translation and also in our culture of the day, we don't really get what is being said here. But in the Greek, this is very, very clear. In the Greek, this running, immediately they would have gone to the Olympic Games concept, a great big circuit and someone running round and round and round and round for that wreath that they would win. That Paul talks about, perishable wreath. But us, a crown, another day. Then there's the second metaphor, which is this hard-working farmer who's labouring and ploughing and working to bring about this harvest. Those are the two metaphors being used here. This word run, let me define it for you. It is strenuous effort for long portions of time. This is not a sprint. I used to be a sprinter years ago and I know what it is to sprint and you give absolutely everything you possibly can for that 10, 12, 13, 14 seconds that you've got to get to the end of that 100 metres. You give it everything. This is not that at all. This is the opposite of that. This is, I need to set myself a pace. I'm running, but I understand that this is not just a temporary short-term thing where I can just expel all that energy. I must... Hang on to it, but I must continue and keep working. It's strenuous, it's hard, it's many laps or circuits, exertion. Strength, perseverance and stamina are required. So Paul says this, 
I want to ensure that the race I am running is not in vain. This long distance journey, this marathon, I want it to be worthwhile in the cause of Christ. Church, let me pause for a moment and give us some application. Many of us may be running a vain race. A race that is not really bearing fruit in the cause of God's kingdom. A race of our own. A race that does not matter in the scheme of eternity. It is void of long-term vision. We may be running for temporal or personal gain. And sadly, and I am becoming more and more aware of this, not just here but in, in Christian circles all over the place, is that we are trying to run this race with all the entanglements and the affairs and sin of this life. And it's no wonder we are getting nowhere. We have literally tied on weights to our race and we are trying to run. And no wonder we're weary and no wonder we stumble and fall because we're trying to do it in our own strength with our own goals and desires. We sort of have the finish line in mind. Yeah, I, I know one day I'll see Christ and I believe that by faith, but I want to live this temporal life. I want to enjoy this life and the pleasures of sin for a season. And we're so busy doing all these other things that we have tied on these weights. And no wonder it's besetting us. No wonder we can't run like we are able to or should. Hebrews 12 tells us, We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so closely clings to us. It holds on to us. And let us run with endurance the race. The same word. Run it with endurance without the entanglements. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You look anywhere else and it's not going to work. If the day of Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ is not our total, complete vision in this race, we are running in vain at this moment. Because you do not run for me. I do not run for you. You do not run for the person next to you. You run this with Christ in focus. We must. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Remember where we are. Remember we're in Rome. Remember we are tied to a Roman soldier here. Just a few years earlier, before Paul got to Rome, he meets with the Ephesian elders, calls them to Miletus. You remember in Ephesians chapter, excuse me, in Acts chapter 20, this is what he tells the elders at the church. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. Wow. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is a few years earlier. Now let's fast forward Paul's life for just a moment. It's the end of his life now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter he's ever going to write in this life and this is what he says to his son, Timothy, who we're looking at in a couple of weeks. 
He says this in chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. This race he's telling us about, I've finished it. I've finished the race. The end is here. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day and not to me only but also to all of those who love his appearing. What's his appearing? The day of Christ. That's the appearing. That's to run. Let's briefly look at to labour. The word labour, again, is a word pregnant with truth in the Greek. It means to feel fatigue, to be wearied to the point of exhaustion. Anybody felt like that before? I know I have. Where you're just, you're just exhausted. You just, I've been working so hard and I'm just exhausted. That's what this word is. Okay, you picture that in your own mind. This is the picture of the farmer who is tirelessly ensuring that a good harvest will be the result of his work now. From before dawn until after dusk, the farmer is ploughing and struggling and sweating. That's what he's doing. Church again, let me pause to give us some application. Many of us mind our own things and not the things of God. Many of us are consumed with all kinds of other Things, distractions. We turn our hand to the plough of personal prosperity and gain. Oh, we're busy, we're working hard, but not for the Lord. We're busy, we're working hard, we're doing all kinds of things, but they're not for the Lord. They're not with the day of Christ necessarily in mind. This life in Christ, and some people find this an unpopular message. I'm okay with that because it's Bible. This life in Christ was never supposed to be for our own endeavours. When you make decisions in your life and you say, I'm going to go and do this, my question for you is, is that what the Lord wants you to do? Because we say in James, the Bible tells us, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. This is not our own life. This is not our own. uh, We don't have the right to just do whatever we like with it. Well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. This is not our life. This is a life of labour in the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been saved to. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we should perform good works for his name. That's the point. The point is to work for him. We're called to service for Christ, and anything less than our best is unsatisfactory. I'm going to conclude the message in a minute with a few thoughts to help us as it relates to this matter of running and working, ministering and serving because there are some things we need to understand there. But let me just remind us that we are to work because the imminent return of Christ is before us at any time. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know your labour is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain. And you know what that came straight after? That came straight after. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us. That's at the end, that verse of that same teaching. We are called to labour and serve for Christ. Samuel wrote in 1 Samuel 12, 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. 
What great things he's done. James 1.27, a verse that hardly anybody ever talks about anymore. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, that we would visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep ourselves unspotted from the world. You know what our job is? We are to visit the fatherless and the afflicted. That's part of what the church does. I do need to just tell you at this point that the striving and the labouring and the running is never in our own strength. So we need to get that right. It's never in our own strength. We cannot do this. We cannot do it. You can strive and work and labour in your own strength and it is worthless on the day of Christ because it's in your own strength and it's for your own goals. But when we are empowered by the Spirit of God who lives within us and who is the one who infuses us with the strength to serve, then we deal with worthwhile service for Christ. It's not in our own strength. It's never been about our strength. In fact, the Apostle Paul, this was not pride. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know what Paul said? He was being honest. I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. I've done way more than any of the other apostles. He's not saying, look at me. He said, but it was because of the grace of God within me. First Timothy 4.10, Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. We toil and strive because our hope is on the living God. So in closing, you've been very patient with me. You see now why I only wanted to do one part of the Apostle Paul's life. Imagine how long we'd be here if I had to do the next verse. And the next verse has a lot. I want to close the service this morning by just having our attention turned to a word about motives and areas of service. Spent a lot of time talking about the day of Christ. That's what we're looking for. That's the view. But now I want to talk about, we're encouraged here by the Apostle Paul, you know, he didn't run in vain and he doesn't want to labour in vain and we don't want to do that either. But I also want to talk about how that works as it relates to motives and actual service. Because I believe today we have a lot of problems as it relates to church, not necessarily here, but I want to just clarify some things. In some church movements, some from which you've come, some that you may have been a part of, people are compelled to serve and labour for Christ without a reason. So, for example, they're told, go clean the floor. They're told, uh, you, you go look after the children's ministry, go and assist the pastor in various duties and so on and so on and so on. And so many times, um, people of God in their kindness and their naivety, just go ahead and follow that concept and just do it, which is to their own account fruit and a reward. But sadly, many Christians do these things with faulty motives when it comes to service and work for Christ. And in these last moments, I just want to clarify and realign our thinking as it relates to service for Christ. So let me just give you so quickly six things. I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to read them. I'm going to have to say something. But let me just... Let me just give them to you real quick. First of all, service, ministry. You know what I mean by that? The labour, what we do as opposed to who we are. We know our identity in Christ. We know what Christ has done. This is the outworking now, the physical, practical service for God that Paul's talking about, the running. Number one, service must always come from a heart of love for Christ. You want me to put it another way? The day of Christ. 
Service must always come from that. So, if God would have you vacuum the floor here or elsewhere, I do this because I love Christ. I do not do this because the pastor told me to do it. Now, I may obey that because I want to be honourable and serve, but that's not my primary reason. My primary reason is because I love Jesus Christ. Service motive must always come from a heart of love for Christ. If it is not with this eternal perspective in mind, we are box-ticking, works-based karma Christianity. It is trying to make others happy rather than an expression of our passionate love for Christ. And in this, our local assembly, it is my heart's prayer, it is my plea before God that as we serve, we serve with this. It comes from a heart of love for Him. Please, I beg of you, do not do things for me. Do not do things for one another. Even though they may be nice motives, the ultimate motive is I love my Saviour and it's with the day of Christ in view, the eternal view by which I do this. And you need to proactively think that. It's not, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever I want. Proactively realise that I am doing this for my Saviour because I love Him. That'll change everything. That'll change everything. Let me just say this. I told you I couldn't stay on the notes. If you have that eternal perspective, if your primary motive is the love of Christ, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. You will, it will produce within you joy in the most horrible tasks. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but there's not too many of us here who would say, I would just love to clean the toilets after the youth and young adults have been here all night. Okay? That's not something that we would all, in our natural sense, say, yes, I'd love to do that. I mean, we know all sorts of things that happen in bathrooms with youth and young people and so on. And it's not something that we would say, or, or I'd gladly clean up that vomit, or I would gladly do this and that. But you know what happens? is that when we are in service for Christ with Him as our focus and our love for Him, we have a joy in spite of the circumstance. You say, you want proof? No problem. Philippians. We find in the Philippian jailer situation, Acts chapter 16, what happened to them? What happened to those two people? Paul and Silas, they're they're in shackles. They've been beaten and hurt and they are singing at midnight. How do you do that? Very simply, the day of Christ in view. Love for my Saviour so that my heart is suddenly fueled with singing and joy. You will have joy. You know the other thing that you'll have? Satisfaction. I'll be satisfied and I will persevere. You say, how do I run this race? I, I, I can't, I get so discouraged and there's so many hurdles and there's so many problems and, and there's the dips and there's the heights and it's just all so difficult. When we get our focus fixed on the day of Christ, we will persevere. You know why so many people drop out of the ministry? You know why so many Christians go and leave if they truly are Christian as opposed to those who look like they were but are not? True Christians, the problem is, is that they're not looking at Christ. They're looking at the circumstance or the world or their flesh or the devil or whatever else. But when you look at Christ, you will persevere because he did. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I should have made this another whole message. Number two, very quickly, service is never about approval of men. Service is never about the approval of men. 
we appreciate affirmations and encouragement in our work, but it is essential that we do not do things for this goal. I do not want to be recognised ought to be our attitude. It doesn't matter if anybody sees this or not. It doesn't matter whether anybody notices me or makes a big hullabaloo about me. I don't do it for that. It is not for the approval of men. We get into a mentality as a church where we are concerned about the approval of men. It will not be very long before we have divisions and disputes among us about who's the greatest. Happen with the disciples. It'll happen with us. Stop, Daniel. Number three. Number three. Really important, this one. There are no greater levels of service. You say, hey, well, hang on. What do you mean there's no greater levels of service? Let me say this. There are different levels. There are more influential areas. There are more public areas. Not everybody is going to stand up the front and preach like I do week after week. There are areas of greater authority and greater responsibility. But service for Christ is in one of two camps. Worthy or worthless. Service is either worthy or worthless and it all comes back down to motive and then what is done. We find that because it's either flammable or it's inflammable, our work. It's either wood, hay, stubble or it's gold, silver, precious stones. You know what the danger is? Someone who has one talent, okay, in the parable of the talents, one who has, someone who has one talent may look at the one who has five talents and say, it's not fair, they've got five, I've only got one. But if I will serve with my one to the absolute maximum, God will bless and that is of no greater or lesser value than the one over here with five because he's got a greater responsibility but... It's all the same before the Lord when it comes to the day of our judgment before him. You say, well, I think there's greater levels of service. Well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Because there are different levels. What I do up the front here is a great level of service in one sense because it's preaching the word. But it is not a greater level of service within the local church because we have been given different gifts and different roles. And all of us are called to operate within those. So if I'm unfaithful to my task and you're faithful to your task, you are serving in a greater way because one day on judgment day, yours won't just burn up. That is what the Bible teaches. The fourth thing is that serving and labouring needs to be within your gifts and means. There are some people, and we love them for it in some ways, but it's dangerous in others, who just want to be a part of everything. I just want to do everything. And we rejoice in the zeal of that person, but we need to quickly remind them that God has gifted you in a particular way for a particular service in his local church. And not many people have been given every gift. Not many people are supposed to be doing everything. That's not the way it works. They can be ill-equipped for certain aspects of service and yet they try and try to fit the bill and end up causing disturbance or even worse, destroying a ministry. If God has given you two talents, stop trying to work as though you have five. If God has given you five, stop acting as though you've got two and being lazy about the other three. Later in this year, Lord willing, we will be doing a study on spiritual gifts. Okay, It's coming. I've told many of you about it. I've given you a little bit of a preview, but it's coming at some point. Okay, number five, on the flip side, some are not willing to serve at all. And that's wrong. 
Hard balance, isn't it? I've got these gifts and I need to serve, but then there's the other side where I just, I'm getting lazy and ineffective because I don't want to serve or it's all too hard or I'm distracted or whatever else. But we've got to get the balance right. We need to be serving with what God has given us and in the areas he wants us to and not getting lazy and lukewarm and lethargic and apathetic over here. And that's an ever-present danger too in our culture. The last thing, and with this we'll conclude. Very important one though. Service is not simply what you do in an organised corporate ministry of the local church. Did everybody get that? Because this one I really want to nail home. Let me say it again. Service is not simply what you do in an organised corporate ministry of the local church. Here's what some people do. Here's what I used to do. Okay? I used to believe and judge my own faithfulness or service to Christ in terms of the amount of organised ministries I was enrolled, enrolled and involved in. Well, I'm doing kids club and I'm doing youth group and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. God must be very, very pleased with my service because I'm involved in every aspect of this local church. I'm doing everything possible. I'm giving absolutely everything. Therefore, God must be happy. Surely, look at all the things I'm doing. This is a works-based mentality. This is what we were saved from. We're saved from that concept. And it's not what the Lord desires. Let me give you a quick summary and list just some ideas that are often overlooked as the essential ministries and services of a Christian. How about this one? The Christian wife and mother who obeys the scripture in managing her household well, teaching and training her children in the paths of righteousness one where she lovingly honours and supports her husband in accordance with Ephesians 5 and mentors other women in the church to do the same. That is a great ministry. That is a calling. That is supposed to happen as a local church, but because it's not organised like Blast Kids Club or Impact Youth or Truth Seekers or Evergreens or whatever other ministry we've got. And I'm not against our ministries. This is not me collapsing our ministries. This is me just pointing out the fact that that's not all there is. That's the Christian wife and mother. What about the hard-working man who faithfully every day labours physically to provide for his family, faithfully gives of his increase to the Lord and others as they have need? That is ministry. That is service that pleases the Lord when it's from the heart for him. What about the single women? We've got a lot of single women here. What about the single woman who dedicates her spare time to visit others? to help them in practical ways, perhaps in cooking or cleaning or praying or reading the scriptures, visiting an older person at Kellogg Lodge, being a blessing, giving of their singleness to the Lord until the Lord provides them with a partner. What about the Christian who proactively seeks to reach their next door neighbour with the gospel? Just doing what Christ did, just going and sitting with them, whether it's in the gutter, whether it's in the lounge room, whether it's in a smoky filled room where there's marijuana all over the floor. That's what Christ did. Prostitutes and publicans. What about inviting people over for a meal and providing a spiritual environment where people can talk about the Lord? I didn't throw this one in for me, this last one either, by the way, just to clarify. I wrote here and then I thought about it afterwards, I'm going to get in trouble for this. What about a husband who buys his wife flowers, which happened to happen a couple of weeks ago, but that's not why I said this, who buys his wife flowers as an expression of his genuine love for his wife? 
Perhaps organises date nights or holidays or special occasions. All of these are ministries and service in God's sight when done from a pure heart. That's service. This is ministry. This is what we do as Christians. And we can be involved in other local church organised things, but I don't want us to think for a moment that I'm ticking off my box because I'm at Blast Kids Club or I'm ticking off my box because I'm a Sunday school teacher or anything like that. Let's live this Christian life with one purpose in mind. The day of Christ approaches and it is for his glory. Paul was such a man. In summary, everything and anything that we do is to be an expression of our love for God and with eternity in view. We are to be running with perseverance and labouring even to the point of exhaustion because the day of Christ approaches and our desire is to bear fruit and to have run and laboured well. Church, are you operating right now with the day of Christ in view? Are you like Paul, a man with eternity in view? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a short Really, only a short look at this man, Paul. We've just scratched the surface. But we're thankful for what is revealed in the word. We're thankful that, uh, Lord, he was not boasting in himself or in his own work, but boasting or rejoicing in the reality that one day when he stands before you, his life will have been labour and running that is filled with fruit. Lord, we thank you for his testimony. And now, Lord, we turn to ourselves and ask, O Lord, that you would help us to run and labour with the same mentality. Lord, let us not be soaked in this culture, materialism and prosperity and all these other things that would seek to distract us. Lord, help us to have one thing in view, our Saviour. And when he's in view, we know that all of the things of this earth will grow so strangely dim when we look at his face. So Lord, help us as a local church in this age, at this time, to live in such a way that would bring you glory and not our own personal or temporal gain. In Jesus' name, amen.